Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Mika Simmons, and you're listening to the Happy Vagina podcast. Coming up, we have the incredible Katerina Scorsoni, mum, qualified jeweller, and star of Grey's Anatomy, who is willing to give it all up aged just 19 after her harassment case was not taken seriously by the industry. This episode has been kindly supported by ABC IVF, the UK's lowest cost IVF clinic. Fertility preservation at the right age is not an easy decision, and there are multiple reasons women choose to do so. But for many, the price can be a huge hurdle. ABC IVF want to make egg freezing an option to as many women as possible, not just those with deep pockets. If you are 37 or under, an all-inclusive egg freezing package costs just £3,595, which includes everything you will need, including medication and the first year's storage. If you've been thinking about taking control of your fertility, why not book an assessment with ABC IVF so you can better understand your fertility health and plan for your future? Just go to www.abcivf.co.uk and book your fertility assessment today. That's www.abcivf.co.uk. Hi, I'm Mika Simmons. Welcome to The Happy Vagina, a podcast dedicated to celebrating pioneers in the female space who've made a difference in women's health, equality and relationships. Each week we chat to an inspiring human being as they explore the experiences that completely change their outlook, promising not only to educate but also entertain and enlighten. And today I am beyond ecstatic to be joined by one of my Instagram crushes, the super talented, award-winning actress, star of Grey's Anatomy, advocate, and mother of three beautiful young women, Katerina Sforsoni. Katerina, welcome to The Happy Vagina. Hello. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's so great to be here. <laughs> I've been sliding into Katerina's DMs for a year. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Are you ready to come on The Happy Vagina podcast yet? Hi, it's me again. It's all- <laughs> It's always only been like time management that has stopped me. I wanted to go on immediately. (laughs) You have had quite a lot going on, but I really, I saw the way that you spoke about women and some of the things that you've done in your life that I find, I mean, just, you know, the fact that in 2020, you were posting yourself breastfeeding. I was like, oh, she's like so ahead of the curve. And I do have so many (laughs) things that I want to speak to you about. And I'm slightly anxious. I'm not going to have time already before we started. However, I am still going to start with the Happy Vagina quiz because when I didn't do that with Gwyneth Paltrow, I can't tell you how much backlash I got. So Katerina Scorsoni, are you ready for the very brief five questions, either or? It's your choice. You can't lose. Okay. Brief or thong? For, I would say brief. I would say, listen, if I'm on set, it's a thong because we can't have underwear lines, but Mm. in life... I like to be held. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. So yeah. if you're on set, even if you're wearing, wearing, so if you're in your civilian clothing, but it's always been that on set, like from the beginning, because you, you're actually a child actor. You've been working since you were eight. Now, listen, I know you weren't wearing thongs when you were eight, but would you say standard in the industry for costume circumstances, whether it be Grey's or any of the other amazing shows you've done, private practice? I mean, there's just a whole list. Yeah. Has it always been a thong on yeah. set? Okay. I would say on set, it's the safest option because you never know what the costume, what the the costume is going to look like. And so usually those hanky panky ones that have Mm. like, they're really like, they don't show the line anywhere, but they still have some like, Mm. they've got some material to Mm. them. They're not just Mm. like a piece of Mm. string. And so they're, 
they're convenient for every wardrobe situation. <laughs> I'm literally going to be hitting up hanky pankies for both of us. But then, but then outside, outside of, of work, I would say it's very much determined by the outfit I will be wearing. And I have an array of options. That was a long answer. We're never going to get through all of this. I know. Now you know why I stopped doing it. I was like, it's so fun. Brazilian or Bush? Oh my gosh. Uh, you know, I, I will say I have some questions about what the draw is to uh, an area that looks prepubescent. I will say that I have some like hard questions about that. So you have some questions about why we do it and what it means to be representing that area of our body hairless. So it's a it's a question of what we're really saying by that. And what we're eroticizing. Mm, I love that answer. It's possibly my favorite answer. I mean, I've had some pretty good answers, but that's a really good answer. Okay, everyone, you need to go and read about the history of hair removal. Or you could read it in my new book, The Happy Vagina. <laughs> Next question. Tampon or menstrual cup? Ooh, you know, I would say, I would say that's an evolving question. But I think that um, with this shortage of tampons that everyone's having because of the supply chain, it, it seems to be quite clear that the cup is like an environmentally sustainable and more affordable option. But I have heard... You know, some people have a hard time with it in terms of like spillage. So, so if you, I think if you're adept at it, the cup seems more probably uh, holistically wise. Yeah, spillage and also it getting stuck. I've had a few people on here say, I want to use the cup, but it keeps getting stuck up there. So there's that. But also the hygiene side of it. Like, I think it is actually one of the things to really kind of address and name is that you have to have boiling water to be able to clean it. And so therefore it's actually not an option for everyone. Some people need to be able to use something that they can dispose of. It's um it's a first it's a first world choice. But I do think that the the one of the things that with tampons I'm conscious of now is you know all of those stories came out a little while ago about how many chemicals are in the cotton. And so actually being intentional about buying like a organic tampons because you're actually exposing yourself to like really not great chemicals when it's like the mainstream brands. Yeah. I know. I completely so. agree. <sighs> Next question. Vagina or cesarean? In an ideal world, I just want to name this because obviously, as you know, I don't have children. In your ideal world, would it be a vaginal birth or a cesarean? I mean, this is a whole podcast for me because I <laughs> studied midwifery with Ina May Gaspin in Tennessee on the farm and I was a doula for a while and I had home births. It's almost as though we're, at, we're, we're one person because I was, I, was, I was about to say to you, because I've heard on the grapevine that you are a doula. And my next question was, did you give birth to your, I mean, of course you gave birth to your own baby. But <laughs> I did. <laughs> <laughs> self-birth. <laughs> oh, I, I self-birthed my babies. Wait, but I do want to qualify. Uh, some people think that if you have home births or if you think that home births or natural birth is great, that, you, that you're anti-cesarean. I'm not. I think it's wonderful that we have cesarean sections for when there is a medical emergency. That's, it has saved lives. And the majority of the time, our bodies as women evolved for millions of years to be able to do this thing really, really efficiently and well and powerfully. And so I think in the majority of cases, being able to experience uh, the profound power of your body and the profound power of the organs associated with birth, um, uh, I think it can really, uh, it can be a moment of like uh, coming into yourself and coming into your power in a way that I wouldn't want to uh, just think it's like apples and oranges or, or six and one half dozen of the other. Like it, it is a, a beautiful experience if you have the conditions available. And that includes psychological conditions and emotional conditions where it's something that could be good for you. So yes, I did have all three of my children in my house, um, in my bedroom. Actually, one was in the living room and uh, <laughs> and I had them all at home and, and it was a really positive experience for me. And I, and I knew that you trained as a doula, but I did not know. And I'm slightly like blown away. And I think it really is another podcast, but I didn't know it was with Inna Meg Askin because she is well, <laughs> the warrior. I mean, she, she is the, the one who essentially yeah. is holding the mirror up to our current birthing 
systems and saying yeah. these have been created. I mean, I learned recently that the whole reason that women give birth lying on their back, Inna might have said this, is because something like idea, Henry yeah. V apparently wanted to be able to see his babies come out of the woman's vagina, right? He wanted to see his wife give birth. And and didn't want to also go down, like be down on the ground because he was like a king. So he was like, oh, oh, yeah. put her up on oh, the bed yeah. and yeah. make her prone instead of using gravity to her advantage. Yeah, I mean, Henry V could not be lower than a woman, especially not his <laughs> wife. I mean, gosh. <laughs> and then also, also the idea of like trying to gaslight women into thinking that this thing that they do so powerfully, women and and people who give birth, and that includes non-binary and uh, trans people who who give birth, but that that this amazing thing that they do is something that they need to be medically rescued by historically by male doctors, right? And so um, so there's this whole kind of like disempowerment that goes along with the narrative that birth is a, a an emergency that is somehow not natural or part of a life cycle. You know what I mean? That this is like, you need to be rescued. You are a victim of this. And you need a medical industry that is mostly populated by men to save you from this thing that is really fucking beautiful. Sorry, I'm, I'm swearing. And powerful. Uh, no, no, no. Swearing is a good thing. Need, needs to save you because you can't do it on your own. And also make them a lot of money in the and process. a lot of money. That's the thing. That's the thing. The capitalism in, enmeshed in, in our birthing systems. Because as you said at the beginning, quite rightly, actually we need to be grateful for the medical system that we have today because yes. it does save lives. And women used yes. to die when there was only yes. natural birth on the yeah. table at home with the hope Absolutely. of someone might be able to come and help. A lot of women used to die in childbirth and they don't so much anymore. So right. we're, we're grateful for it. But I'm, I'm like, I mean, is there anything that you can't do, Katrina? Me? Like, Yes. Why were you like, what what, what possessed you to go and become a jeweler? Were you like, "Mm, I know, just in between seasons of filming, I might go and do that? (laughs) I think, you know, I I think probably my journey through the film industry was part of it. Like, the big thing that set me on that path was um, I was the uh, birth coach for my sister who uh, had a baby... Uh, she didn't have a partner at the time. And so I kind of filled in that role and saw her do this. And she had a home birth. I saw her do this incredible, powerful thing. And it really reoriented her relationship with her body. And it reoriented my relationship with my body. Again, like seeing uh, the function of my, of my vagina and of my whole reproductive system as something that was uh, powerful and creative, as opposed to something that was there uh, to be, um, objectified by the male gaze and and to create desire for the male gaze you know what I mean like it really reoriented my understanding of my embodiment after I lost my mother I ended up training as a craniosacral therapist and it was part of my like wanting to go deeper I think it's as a woman going and exploring if you can or reading about some of these more alternative ways to look after your well-being you will understand so much better about how to kind of be in touch with your inner goddess. You know, the, the, the woman that got eliminated, the patriarchal Western medical system that doesn't give space for us to trust our intuition and be deeply aligned with self-healing, you know, self-healing, self-healing survival, you know, just, just the fact that you can survive on, on your own. Um, but I'm glad that you had, I hope you had someone in your home when you gave, when you gave birth to your children. Yes. I did have midwives. Are midwives illegal in America? So in Canada, they're very supported. And that's where I initially started studying. And But in America, it depends on the state. And they're not illegal, but um, they're not... Uh, basically, they're, the insurance that they have to pay to practice is so high that it is kind of meant to be a deterrent. Um, there are a lot of things that are set up to make it very financially non-viable for people to practice as midwives in certain states, including California. It's not great in California. You would think it would be awesome, but it isn't. And there's very few. So they also have to have an obstetrician who will like co-sign and like supervise. And there are very few who are willing to do it again, because it's so litigious here. And so uh, everybody's trying to protect themselves. And the stories around birth are (laughs) misleading. And, and, you know, in terms of like negative outcomes, like they happen in the hospital. They don't happen so much at home. Like, (laughs) and midwives also are trained for years in birth. 
They're trained in birth for years. Doctors are trained for a part of their program mm. in birth. Mm. Um, but also so anyway. when I was writing, when I was writing the book for the half vagina, which is, is, is very sadly just been put back, to, it's going to be published next week in the UK and the American date has just been put back to January next year. But one of the things that I discovered through doing that, I thought I can't write this book with all this really fun, loud facts about women's health, unless I look at the history and what happened. And the midwives, actually the way that midwifery was developed was because women were not allowed to be doctors, but the men back then did not feel it was appropriate for a man to be the person who was helping a woman give birth. And so really those midwives should be called doctor midwife because it was the only aspect of doctorism that that women could practice in, you know? It's somehow rather seen as like a nursing role, but it's not. Right. Well, one of the things that I like about the term midwife, uh, and I, I agree, like the the gravity and the credibility of the word doctor in our culture, it would be important. And to give to give... Uh, women who are so highly skilled in this area, credibility in the way that men have received. But what I like about the word, uh, the etymology of the, so midwife means with woman. You probably read about that. It means with woman. And I think one of the nice things about the culture of midwifery and home birth and, or even natural birth in hospital or in a birth center is that there's very much a, a respect for the fact that the, the expert, the midwife is truly just there Midwife means with woman. She's there to be with the woman who is giving birth to the child. The woman is the powerful agent, right? She is doing this. There is someone here to support her. And if something goes wrong, they can help. But the woman is powerfully doing this miraculous, insane superhero thing herself. She's not being rescued by someone else. And the midwife is there in case. And so I think that orientation really kind of focuses us back on what this liminal transition from like maiden time in a life to this like matriarchal mother time in a life and the like the gateway towards that for some for some people uh, is the birth experience. Not for everybody. There are many ways to get from a maiden experience of womanhood into a mother matriarchal experience of womanhood. And they do not always include actual biological birth, but um, it is one avenue. I hear you. I hear you. And what you're saying is that that, that that avenue isn't given the full respect and space that potentially it could be because of the medical systems. And, uh, you know, uh, it's... um. I think it is changing, but there's still a lot of work to be done in this space. And I'm so excited that you trained, but we've got one more question. I can't okay. carry on talking about Anna May Gaskin. That's <laughs> another sorry, podcast. Yeah. We will do a whole <laughs> podcast on how you train as a junior. My last question to you, in the Happy Vagina quiz, at nine mm. o'clock in the morning, Pacific time, yeah. <laughs> is vibrator or vegetable? Oh, you know... <laughs> <laughs> and you can take that question choose. however you want. You can take it whether or not you would prefer to eat really healthy vegetables or have a passionate climactic experience or whether or not you might use a vibrator or a vegetable. Okay, how do I want to answer this question? I think that there is that is there's so much sensuality that doesn't have to include batteries. <laughs> um, mm. I am uh, an organic local grower of my own produce. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but also, the, I think the thing that um, uh, it's a beautiful answer. You say, you, <laughs> I, I think I think that the the focus on penetrative, uh, like vibrator pleasure, sometimes distracts women from the fact that our, our entire bodies and our psyches and our emotional life and our spiritual aspect are all involved in the kind of orgasmic potential of, of womanhood. And so, so I would, I would, I would just expand. The question. <laughs> Katrina, can we get married? I'm like, I'm, I'm actually not gay, but I'm, I'm like, I'm starting to think I might want to be. <laughs> <laughs> if I still believed in that institution, I would maybe consider it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I'm just getting on the next flight, basically. Okay, I'm coming. Right. I'm, com I'm coming to LA. You're in LA right now, right? Please come. I'll host you. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> You've scored 100% of answering the questions, which are only about your preferences and experiences. Congratulations. And thank you so much for doing, doing a deep dive into your vagina at nine o'clock in the morning with me. Uh, Katerina, you have a huge career as an actress and you've been working from when you were very young, actually, from the age of eight, I think. Have you seen... Well, first of all, how was it for you transitioning? Because not everyone can make that transition into becoming an adult actor. Uh, for me, it was, um, there were different phases. I think I was quite lucky. Like, I think that the uh, the the common association with like a, a young person who is in this industry is that they've been like absolutely exploited by their parents and they're paying for the whole family. That, that was totally not my experience. My parents are fabulous oddball academics and my sister wanted to act and so they allowed us to and all of the money was put into like a savings account for college or you know something down the road and so so it was very much framed as an extracurricular activity that happened to be lucrative as opposed to like this is your identity um, and so because we were holding it so loosely like that the transitions were kind of similar to you know all of the awkward transitions of life but there was there wasn't like a oh no there wasn't the stakes of like oh no what if i can't there wasn't the intensity of the stakes it was like cool if it's fun and it's working keep going and if there's something else that catches your interest do that uh and so in fact there were many things that caught my interest and i kept trying to go and do them and then because apparently this is where I'm wanted in terms of the universe, I kept being pulled back into projects and slowly kind of came to understand that all of the things that I was interested in and, and passionate about could be experienced through this narrative storytelling career. When you get the good parts, when I first started, when I trained as an actress and I was um, being told that I was that it was a self-centered career and stuff, I think that if you get to tell the stories that change lives then I think actually theatre and film and television is a way to help people heal their experiences in life. And I think what can happen for a lot of people is that they end up doing stuff that isn't about that. It ends up being stuff that actually is more perfunctory and just kind of like entertainment and there's nothing wrong with it. But I think the calling, I would suggest the calling for most of us as artists and creatives is to, is to help and it might seem like a weird thing. You say, well, go and train to be a therapist then. But actually, there's nothing like sitting and watching a film and having a cry or going to the theatre and seeing people on stage say something that you felt last week. And that is a really beautiful thing to be involved in. You are part of the Shondaland tribe, actually. Grey's Anatomy, which is now in its 365th year and it's had 2 million and 300 series. <laughs> yeah, and then you went into private practice and, and had a, a much bigger storyline there and then came back over to Grey's Anatomy. But it's part of I know that there's going to be loads of Grey's Anatomy fans listening, and I know they're going to want me to talk about that, but I don't want to. I want to talk about the fact that you're part of the Shondaland tribe, which I find, like, really interesting that this woman... So why don't you say a little bit about what Shondaland is for anyone that's listening that doesn't know? Okay, gosh. Uh, Shondaland, Shondaland is like the production company of Shonda Rhimes, and it has evolved over the years. At this point, it's producing many, many shows. And there are um, different kind of show creators that are under Shonda and supervised by Shonda, as well as the shows that she's creating herself. And they're basically, it's basically a production company with a mission to like move the needle on social issues and, and create really compelling stories that uh, I would say, I would say specifically that women want to watch and are interested in. Um, Me too. That that center women and that center uh, underrepresented groups and 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 kind of uh, create visibility for everybody um, in a way that is uh, nourishing to our souls as a culture. And 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 Shonda Rhimes set Shondaland up in two thousand and five. She's a black. She's she's a woman, and she's a woman mm -hmm. of color. She's a black woman. She's an American woman who in 2005, mm -hmm. you know, just a few years ago at the Golden Globes that, you know, a lot of women were getting on stage and saying, you know, we all need to make space for women. And I'm like, how did she do that? How did she manage to get through? And I think the way she did is Grey's Anatomy because she's taken mm. quite a commercial idea 
and something that every single human being would want to watch because the storylines are really enticing mm -hmm. and, and interesting and it's mm -hmm. got some sass to it. But within it, whenever you see a lineup of Grey's Anatomy cast, mm -hmm. from the very start, there's almost almost always been more women than there have men. And and yeah. I, you know, like you just go, oh, wow, that's in, like that's interesting. And now people are like fighting for that, right? Now people are like, we have to have an equal amount of like women and, and other human beings that have been misrepresented in our cast. And I feel like you've been involved in that from the beginning. I, I really, I wanted to know whether or not you, from working when you were, when you were very young and then becoming part of that family, and I'm not naive, I don't think that having a umbrella parent company run by a woman doesn't mean that there aren't still some complications, but did you find that there was a significant difference once you joined that to the way that you were treated as a woman? Because I feel like you've been very outspoken, which we're going to come to after this question, but I feel like some of the things that you've said and done, I don't know if they would have been supported by a non-female run company. Right, right. Yeah. No, we definitely have a level of safety as uh, as women in this industry when we have female showrunners, female creators, a female run uh, production company that that I had not experienced prior to this. And I do think that I do think that Shondaland specifically and Shonda Rhimes and Betsy Beers, uh, who is Shonda's uh, producing partner. And uh, I think we have changed the culture a bit in terms mm. of what our expectations are for the safety for women uh, behind the cameras and on camera. I, I would say one of the biggest things that I've noticed that's different is um, even, even the way the characters are written. Like I think one of the things that made Grey's Anatomy so compelling and uh, surprising was that they were uh, female characters who were multidimensional and dynamic and flawed, and and their 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 gaze was centered rather than the male gaze. You had these gorgeous men who were like sparkly and um, uh, you know swoony, but they were serving a function on Grey's Anatomy and in a lot of the Shondaland stuff that 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 historically women have served where, where the female character was there to legitimize the male character and make us understand that the male character was attractive and desired and powerful because, or else how would he get this dream woman? Right. And we've kind of in some ways inverted that in Shondaland where we have these like beautiful, sparkly, gorgeous, like cut chiseled, uh, male characters or love interests. Uh, and then we have, we have the, the gays, the female gays really featured. Mm -hmm. It's so exciting. And I'm sure that it has given you uh, a real chutzpah in terms of feeling centered as a woman and that you count in a way that I think didn't used to exist. What, one of the things that, and I, I'm, I'm, I want to go back a bit, which I think it's important still to talk about. Sometimes I'm like, do we need to talk about this? And I think we do. So in 2017, you added your voice to a, uh, a complaint by many, many women in the industry about a director who you had been harassed by as a teenager. And you were not alone. There was many, many other women that were coming out and you spoke very candidly. And one of the reasons that your voice in that was so important is because you'd actually written something when you were a teenager referencing so you didn't name him but you you wrote was it seven how many years before was it that you wrote the article where you mentioned the I, fact that you felt you'd been harassed I wrote the article in 1999 right so <laughs> you were able to corroborate and say uh -huh. hi everyone it's me here and I wrote about this look back in 1999 yeah, that when when the when the Me Too kind of movement was happening, yes, what what happened was there were some women who came forward about this particular director, and I had not added my voice to it at that point. Um, uh, I was kind of watching, and then uh, and then the director came out in a Rolling Stone interview, and absolutely dragged the women who were coming out against him, and uh, absolutely tried to undermine their credibility. Uh, 
And uh, so at that point, I felt like it was necessary for me to back them up. Um, and so I, yeah, I referenced back to 1999, which was a long time before the Me Too movement had happened. And uh, yeah, I, what had happened at that point, this same director who these women had come forward about uh, had been in Toronto auditioning for a film. And uh, uh, basically I was sent to meet with him to discuss the script. And thankfully I, I handled that situation in a way that did not, uh, result in 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 his getting exactly what he was looking for but it was still traumatic to understand that I had been sent into this situation by people that I trusted and uh that I was being uh told essentially that my role in this industry was this uh objectified um uh, as an objectified commodity right and uh and so that was already traumatizing for my uh sense of self and identity as a, as a young woman. Um, but then I was kind of further thrown by, I, I was raised by feminists and I assumed that when his actions had come to light, that people would kind of rally and make sure that this didn't happen. And so when I reported it very earnestly and like, Hey guys, I'm guessing no one knows that this is happening. Uh, let me tell you so that we can remove this person from their position of power. You told people in the industry then. You didn't just write about it. You went and reported no. it. I went and reported it. And that's kind of what the article was about. It was not just about the incident. It was about that I reported it to uh, the people that I felt could protect me. And I was told not to talk about it. Oh, I'm so angry. I'm so angry right now. <laughs> well, and then this is, it gets worse. So then I, I reported it to some other people at higher levels of the industry. And this is in 1999. And I was told that it was unfortunate that this had happened, but it happens all the time. And they referenced Weinstein. <laughs> and this is in 1999. And they were like, this is what happens. So basically you should be flattered and I'm sorry it happened to you. <laughs> <gasps> and, uh, and so at that point, and they, and everyone across the board was like, don't say anything. This will be absolutely oh, Katrina, I'm so sorry. professional trajectory. It was, it was pretty crap. Um, and so at that point I made a decision and I had already, I had been offered a scholarship to go to college and I was trying to decide at that point if I was going to take the scholarship and go, or if I was going to move to Los Angeles and pursue film because things had been going well there. So I wrote the article for the like union magazine and it was a cover story about sexual harassment in the workplace. And I chose not to name him because through this process, I had come to understand that people would interpret it as like sour grapes if I, that I didn't get the part. And so I was upset. And so I decided not to name him, but to talk about the issue of sexual harassment in the industry so that we could warn <laughs> other actors and actresses about this kind of behavior so that they were prepared. Cause I walked in completely unprepared. And so I was like, okay, if they're not going to stop it, we at least have to tell people it's happening so that they can gird themselves against this kind of um, abuse. Um, and so I wrote the article and essentially, um, quit the industry and went to, I mean, it was not, it was not the thing to do in 1999. And so I went to university and I got a degree in literary studies and philosophy. And, uh, and then I hadn't quite decided if I was going to become a midwife or if I was going to uh, continue acting later, but I was kind of pulled back into the industry later on, but it was a decision to quit because of, of that experience. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, so many women who did try and speak out, their careers were either ruined or sidelined. So they got bits of work. And, you know, there's some some women who are not with us today, actually, who I would say their mental health was impacted to such a great extent. Because also when you're being gaslit, that kind of bullying, that specific kind of bullying, when you're being ostracized, but no one is actually brave enough to say that you're you're that it's happening. So you, it makes you feel completely crazy. I'm sure that, and, and I, it sounds like that didn't happen to you because the only, you took your power back, but the way that you took your power back was to, was to leave your career. And it's like the women that chose to say something cannot leave. I think some of them, I you know, I think some of them lost their lives because of it. I through, think you're right. 
eating disorders or just general, you know, maybe misuse of drugs. But if you actually look at some of the women that tried to stand up for themselves, they Mm -hmm. then didn't work. And you feel mad. You're like, did Mm -hmm. that happen? Am I making it up? And it is traumatizing. It Mm -hmm. is frightening. But I do think the worst bit is in all of these things is not being heard, Mm -hmm. not having, holding a, saying, hey, this is going on. And Mm -hmm. people, it's not even like they told you it was wrong. You were were lying. They were like, yeah. No. And get back in your box. Yeah. They were like, well, hope, hope you get the next gig. Like (laughs) it was, Mm. it was, it was, uh. It was being excused and they were using Weinstein as an example of why it was okay. Mm. <laughs> so I'm it was so a sorry. very bewildering situation. And I think you're right. I think that uh, in terms of like uh, so many in the industry, so many eating disorders, so much drug use, I think uh, we now understand that often those are symptoms. Those are symptoms of traumatic injury. Right. And so, uh, and again, uh, when someone exhibits those symptoms, they are vilified and they're said, oh, you're the problem. But <laughs> they're trying to cope with something that was a trauma that was inflicted by a perpetrator. That's absolutely <laughs> so right. It's wild. And, and also the nature of trauma, so much of it is about having one's sense of uh, identity and sense of self deconstructed by the, uh, by the shocking and overwhelming uh, violence of the traumatic situation. And so it causes a breach in the relationship with self in the relationship with self-understanding. And it also causes a breach in the relationship with community. And so the way you heal trauma, you know, you don't, you don't feel safe anymore. You don't feel safe and you don't feel like your identity and your relationship with your community is, uh, is um, there's no coherent uh, narrative about those two things. And so the way people heal when they go to talk therapy or when they, the way people heal is to rebuild a narrative that is coherent. And so when you're being gaslit by an entire industry, uh, about what happened so that they can kind of continue on making profit, um, it, it creates a secondary trauma that is often, I think, worse than the initial incident. And so, yes, I was lucky. I had, I had a really supportive family and I was, 19, I was ready to go to college and completely changed my identity. I was prepared to walk away and I had the resources to do that, uh, the emotional resources and the psychological resources. Um, But I'm sure a lot of women didn't. We're going to take a very quick ad break. And before we do, I wanted to let you know that this podcast was produced in association with Albright, the leading career network for women. Got a mission, a five-year plan or an outrageous dream? Albright will have your back. They had mine. Visit www.allbrightcollective.com to join their free community today or download the Albright app available in the App Store. Albright, a global sisterhood for ambitious women. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Did you feel that speaking out in 2017 did you have like another enlightenment? Did it, did it kind of like reignite your sense of self to an even greater? I mean, it feels to me like you are naturally through your upbringing that you, you, you have a good sense of what's right and wrong. So I'm going to speak out about it. But did speaking out with all of those women in 2017, did that feel different? 
it was exciting to see the movement happening. And really what was exciting, I guess, was that we had gotten to a point culturally where women did not feel like um, uh, speaking about their, uh, the perpetration of abuse against them would necessarily, actually, you know, that was an experiment. I think there were women at the beginning of that movement who had, like me, going to college, were prepared to be done. I mean, Ashley Judd, like there were some women at the beginning of that movement who clearly were like, you know what? I've had a good run. Let's let's do this for the young ones. You know, and I and I will say, even in my speaking up in that moment, it was interesting to me that I didn't speak up until I felt like I was I was uh, standing up for someone else. You know what I mean? There was still this sense of like, I need to be tough. But then when I saw someone else being victimized by this person, it motivated me to into action. You know what I mean? Um, I think I think often, and maybe that's some of that like internalized patriarchy that that women are comfortable being of service to others, but not necessarily advocating for themselves. Um, and so maybe I would frame it that way that the the uh, the radicalization that happened in that moment for me, um, I guess solidified my mission as like an, uh, as a, a kind of now more senior woman in the industry, uh, in terms of my life <laughs> cycle, uh, where now I'm in a position to speak so that the younger 19 year olds who don't have the resources that I have, uh, won't have to have the same experience. Yeah, I mean, listen, you, you, I, one of the reasons that I've got my girl crush on you is because you use your platform to advocate for, I would say, I mean, I was like, so who does she advocate for? And I was like, oh, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, okay, yeah. So <laughs> if you're a human being who's not being treated decently, Katarina Scorsoni is your human being to like advocate for you. <laughs> But I think that's what happened when I quit and went and studied philosophy and literature and uh, really I studied comparative religions as well. I think I got a really coherent, solid modus operandi. I think I understood that the reason we tell narrative story is because there is an inherent dignity to the human being that must be protected because it is sacred. And so from that one principle all of the groups that I would advocate for or people that I advocate for, it's not specific to, you know, being in this specific group. It's the, the through line is I see someone whose human dignity is being undermined, which is, which is wrong. And it's not just wrong for them. It victimizes all of us because when we can undermine someone's humanity, we undermine our own. We don't understand what we are and what our relationship to the planet is and what our relationship to, I'm going to say the divine is. And so we all suffer, whether we are being the victim or the perpetrator in that moment. Yeah. It hurts everyone. It really does. Mm -hmm. And then obviously, you know, you do advocate your, your role within Grey's Anatomy is playing a woman who is married and then works out that she's, or doesn't work out, but is able to speak openly about being pansexual. You are in a relationship with a non-binary you are in a relationship with a non-binary person on the show. Mm -hmm. And I know that you advocate a lot for trans, but I saw on Twitter last week, you put something like, I don't know, it was something along the lines of people who need to spend their time like talking about and moaning or something around people's sexual identities or gender identities are just so embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> Get with the program. It, Get truly, with the program. I mean, I <laughs> I think I've passed the point of just seeing uh, ignorant, violent bigots as like monsters. And I've gotten to the point of seeing them as like losers. Like <laughs> truly, if you are like concerned about where someone else is finding their pleasure or getting their orgasm, you clearly are not having satisfactory ones like oh. go enjoy yourself get your pleasure wherever and if you truly are pleased mm -hmm. you will surely be happy for everyone else to be pleased in whatever mm. way they are pleased mm. so like, I love that I love that yeah. let's let's basically name it the Republican Party are depressed just like, 
repressed and depressed and like really just relax, like get some pleasure. If you have pleasure, you are going to be thrilled for other people to have it. I think that's right. I think that's right. And you you have found a, a new pleasure in the last year or so because you have left your relationship because you decided that that had run its course and you wanted a, a new way of life. But you have together three daughters who you share, who I've got to say, I always thought were quite lucky. I mean, when I saw the post in 2020, when you were breastfeeding on set, I was like, <laughs> those are lucky children to have a mother like that. Was it? Was it difficult to put that post out for you again was it I'm sorry if these questions seem a bit perfunctory but like did you have to make a decision about whether to put that post out that one no I would say again because of my background with Ina Mae Gaskin I I feel so strongly about uh women's bodies being uh uh, not just women's bodies, uh, people who give birth being understood as powerful and uh natural Natural. natural. It's and just natural. <laughs> it's for feeding my children. And I've been nursing my children for almost a decade. And so it's such a regular part of my life that I'm not ashamed of it. I'm proud. I'm literally creating the like bones and blood of my children through my energy and food. Like that's a me. I'm a goddess. Mm, you- <laughs> you know I mean? and so why wouldn't I let people worship? I love it. I'm a goddess. <laughs> you said no goddess. I just just literally just learned recently because you know they're now starting to think that uh, breast milk has a protein in it that might be the cure for bladder cancer. Oh wow! I, obviously, yeah, right. I mean, like, of course it does, but also like, wow, um, all at the same time. But I was googling and trying to find out a little bit more about that, and I and I discovered that. Um, which I didn't know because I'm not a mum, that actually your breast milk, when you're breastfeeding, if your child is sick, your breast milk starts to create the vitamins that your child needs to heal it. And I, and listen, if you can't breastfeed, there's no shame here. Yes, we I understand. Hope everyone knows you're, that. you're doing whatever you need to do, whether it's what, physically yeah. or psychologically or emotionally. Yeah. You want your baby to be fed and happy. We are happy. However, it is lovely when you are breastfeeding. It's just, wow. It's just, wow. I'm like, oh my God, our bodies are amazing. Your your three daughters are really lucky to have you. And I do want to touch on a little bit for the community who've asked me to. You have three amazing daughters. And Pippa, she is now five? She's five, yeah. And yeah. she was born with Chisomi 21? Yeah. yeah. And can you just say what, what that is? So um, her 21st chromosome, uh, which is, I believe, the smallest chromosome, uh, uh, has three copies. So instead of having two copies of the chromosome, like we have with most, uh, one, she got an extra one. And so she has everything that we have and more. (laughs) Um, and so that, but there are some, not, but there are some, uh, differences, uh, that come along with a third chromosome, uh, that, that, uh, yeah, she has, she has differences. She has, um, some disabilities and uh and she has many many strengths <laughs> uh yeah well for sure I know that friends of mine who so the, the 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 layman term for it is down syndrome and women that I know who also share your gift of having children that are down syndrome they always say to me there's nothing down about down syndrome like that right. it's actually right. that that they consider themselves to be one of the lucky ones. And obviously all of your children are as important as each other. And I don't want to fixate. I think I really want to talk to you about it, about you. I don't want to talk about your daughter. She's not here. I'm like, okay, so I knew you were amazing. And now you shared what you shared on the podcast. I'm like, okay, she's like really, really amazing. But <laughs> from the little I've understood, Katrina, you you actually even had another kind of enlightenment when she came right. along. How, mm-hmm. What was it? What what did it bring to you as a woman? Right. Um, oh gosh, it's such a long story. Like we need like a bottle of wine. But um, <laughs> I would say that um, I was not aware before Pippa was born uh, of of I thought of myself as you know uh, an open minded. Uh, Liberal. I was not aware of the extent of unconscious ableism that I had. I didn't understand disability. I didn't understand Down syndrome. Uh, I had been raised just expecting to have 
typical children. And so she, when she was born, I had not seen it modeled uh, uh, what her particular disability looked like, what parenting someone with Down syndrome or a disability looked like. And so I, I was afraid uh, about my capacity to, to do the job well uh, and what my role as a mother was uh, in terms of like it reoriented. I was like, okay, wait, if she's not able to do all of the things that my typical kids can do, which I still don't know what she's going to be capable of, by the way, that's a, that's a wild assumption. Can you say what unconscious ableism is? I, 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 I'm, I'm with you on it, but for you, what, what does that mean? Unconscious ableism. So it would go along with kind of all of the diversity um, uh, conversations about walking through the world thinking that there's a normative, thinking that there's some sort of standard of normal that we are all trying to be close to, like some platonic form that we're like, oh, we're, we're, at, we're some degree close to that form or away from it. And that whole framing, that whole paradigm of understanding in the world is what leads to a hierarchical uh, relationship with human value. And that can be applied to uh, white supremacy, and that can be applied to patriarchy, and that can be applied to heteronormativity, uh, and it can be applied to disability. All of those, all of those um, areas of discrimination and bias really are rooted in this idea that there's something that is best and that everything else is a degree or a degree further away or closer to best instead of the horizontal view. That's like a vertical view of the world. The horizontal view of the world that there's no best. We are all different and the specificity of us is what makes us gorgeous. When you look at a bunch of flowers, you don't want one flower. It's not like, well, which of us is the best tulip? No, the gorgeousness is that some of them have these petals and these colors and this fragrance and it's the it's the multiplicity and the specificity that makes the garden stunning, right? And so reorienting my entire worldview to see my wrong-headed normativity and kind of fracturing that whole worldview and going, wait, no, I don't go through the world assuming that people want to fit into something. I go through the world actually now being curious about what makes you, you. And listen, <laughs> what makes you beautiful and what do you desire and what lights you up? And then I can take pleasure in all of the different expressions of creativity we get to experience on this planet. Well, and also, you know, if we all were more like that, because not only does normal as a fulcrum that we're all pivoting around enable patriarchal or other systems that keep the hierarchy, but it also induces shame to whatever level, either, either a small drawing pin in their shoe of shame or like an all-encompassing, they can't leave the fucking house level of shame where they just feel so, and they may not even know that it's shame that's blocking them, but essentially they're being fed these images of what is of, of normal and, and, and they don't feel like they belong. And I think, you know, I mean, I, that, that's the thing, isn't it? For everyone to feel like they, they really belong. You, you did say when you first found out all you knew was that everyone was scared of Down syndrome. So that was all you knew to be. When, when you found out, did you find out when you were pregnant or when Pippa arrived? You know, it's interesting. A lot of people want to know the answer to that question. The reason I stay away from answering that question specifically right now, it might change later on. But the reason I have stayed away from it is because both a prenatal diagnosis and a birth diagnosis are a profound experience. Uh, and at this point, because I am visibility for so many people. Yeah. Um, it's not I relevant. To, uh, yes. Yeah. I, and I want to represent both, both of those communities. And, the, and, and, and I, I'm really happy for you not to answer. I think I want to share something which is really important for me, which is that I haven't managed to have children. There's many, many, many reasons. And some days I'm like really happy I haven't. And other days I'm still sad. It's, it's a whole thing because I'm still kind of like just cusping. As I was coming towards 40, the messaging that I was getting 
as a woman who hadn't had children by the time I was 40 was that I had this like high potential that I would have. And I feel angry. I'm literally inside right now. I feel angry because coming back to this idea of the norm and what's right and wrong and that, 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 that your immediate response was, which, um, you know, you've, you've completely transformed through your initial response was, what does this mean? I'm frightened of this. And then working out it's because everyone else is. I was completely fear-mongered from when I was mm-hmm. 38 to 40. And a partner I was with even said to me, because I said, we don't need to have children yet if you're not ready. And he was like, but if we don't do it now, then you're going to have this high. And as I was prepping to interview you, I felt so angry with him because it's mm-hmm. like, we're all preempting this situation of a person being born into the world that might actually bring us the greatest grace that we've ever had. And my experience of people who do have children with disabilities across the board, um, some, sometimes it can make their life really, really challenging, but uh, especially when there's physical difficulties. And I understand that financial uh, constraints can have a very deep impact. We have disability in my family. So I, I'm not, I'm not naive to it. However, you know, it's just like, what would the world look like if we didn't see it as something to be frightened of? And we weren't telling women that they needed to be frightened of that. And I think that's really why I, I asked you, because I think I, I, I more, I wanted to know what your opinion is on, on, on testing and, and, and yeah, that well, whole messaging. I, I, I will say again, I think that it is such a personal and individual choice. And I think you're right. I think there are some financial implications, uh, especially the way our culture is organized. But I think the answer is making sure that our society is supporting disabled people. It's not getting rid of disabled people. Like that's an an inversion, a perverted inversion of the solution. It's you, you get more programming and more funding for disability services. You, you don't engage in eugenics. Essentially. Yeah. Essentially. Right. And so essentially. And so whether you want to have a child or not, that's a that's a, a very personal, you know, decision. But loading the deck in a way that makes women and family people again believe that there is a kind of child that they should want and a kind of child that is not valuable ultimately distorts our relationship with self, because that places us in that vertical paradigm of, well, where am I? How valuable am I? And by the way, people talk about disability as though it's this like marginal issue, or there are these unfortunate people who are disabled, and then there's the rest of the normal. Yes. Yes. And there's a pity. I was thinking this would be a really interesting conversation because I was thinking what you're doing is you're saying, hey, don't feel sorry for me. Don't pity me because that is the societal view is poor you. And you're like, uh, no lucky me. Well, and poor me because my life doesn't look like yours. Like what a self-centered view they have that I want my life to look like theirs. My life has its challenges. I'm sure their life has its challenges. Every family has somebody who's like suffering from addiction or some other kind of gambling, whatever. Everybody has challenges. And so to decide that the challenge of disability is an intolerable challenge, whereas all the other challenges within this normative structure are fine, is it's just, it's just bigotry that we're not focusing on. We have compartmentalized in our, our society has compartmentalized in a pathological way because we want to externalize and other disabled people. But the truth is we will age. Every single one of us is going to be in the disability community at some point in our lives, whether it's whether it's chronic illness after COVID or whether it's a broken hip at some point later on, whether it's dementia, we are all going to experience disability. And the denial we're in as a culture, the like fear of mortality we're in as a culture that makes us think, oh, no, 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 I'm fine. They are disabled. Let's not support them. Let's keep the resources and just get rid of them. That is the thing that's contributing as well to like our um, disrespect for our elders. It's the very thing that is actually destroying community and the sense of the age hierarchy. So not a negative hierarchy, but the fact that we used to look after our parents and that people were kept within value in their wisdom and experience. Like it, it puts us in a state of fear to be like, oh, disabled people have less value somehow. 
well, guess what? We are all going to be disabled. So are we now going to spend our life on this treadmill trying to like avoid the ostracization that we have participated in by indulging this denial? So anyway, I could, I could, <laughs> whole bottle of wine. <laughs> there are more podcasts with Katrina Scorsoni coming your way. This has been the most amazing conversation, really for me, very enlightening. And um, I've learned so much from you and I, and I do continue to learn from you, just listening, just watching what you do. Um, I'm, I'm really grateful to, to have found you and for you to be part of the Happy Vagina community. I do have one more question for you. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Which is the question that we always end the podcast with. And that question is, and you've almost, you've almost answered it on a couple of occasions <laughs> during the podcast already. But the question is, what makes your vagina happy today, Katerina? Is knowing that she is gorgeous and adored and the seat of my personal power. Again, possibly my favorite <laughs> answer. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. We're the guests. <laughs> Katrina Scorsoni, thank you so much for coming on the Happy Vagina podcast. It's been an honor to speak with you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for doing this work. I'm Mika Simmons. This is the Happy Vagina. And that was the amazing Katrina Scorsoni. See you next week. Thanks for listening to the Happy Vagina podcast produced by Pineapple Audio Production. And don't forget, if you're thinking about freezing your eggs, check out ABC IVF for low-cost fertility preservation. Take control of your fertility now by booking an assessment with ABC IVF so you can better understand your fertility health and plan for your future. Just go to www.abcivf.co.uk and book your fertility assessment now. That's www.abcivf.co.uk Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.